This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our guest today is Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto. Her book is Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working Even If We Can with Columbia University Press. Today, Michelle Silver on Coping with Retirement. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. And now we turn to Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto. Michelle is an expert in gerontology and life course, and she is coming out with a new book, Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working, Even If We Can, with Columbia University Press. And Michelle, this is a really interesting topic. You know, on one hand, it's common to see work as like a burden, a yoke around our necks. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of us think of retirement akin to what maybe a prisoner thinks of parole, right? Like we're released from the burden of work. But on the other hand, you know, we know that work is like integral to our identity. And as we age, it becomes like a major venue for meeting people. It gives us a reason to put on clothes in the morning. And so maybe retirement isn't as simple as, you know, the the Freedom 55 crowd might be suggesting it is. Can you tell us a little bit about your study uh retirement like what goes on when people face retirement yes you raise a number of really great points i think that most people actually associate retirement with freedom mm-hmm. and I, I in my book i'm looking at a subset of people um people for whom their personal identity was really closely intertwined with the work that they did with their mm-hmm. life's work and um and so you know when they retired um they they found it to be a real letdown. Uh, many of them were looking forward to it um, and, you know, thought it would be this great time to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And mm-hmm. instead, they really struggled um, to recalibrate their sense of self-worth. And so my book is, you know, a series of studies that I did with different types of people for whom their life's work was um, the way they defined their personal sense of who they were. So I Mm -hmm. I interviewed doctors, I interviewed CEOs, um, elite athletes, people who had uh, represented their country in Olympic games, Mm -hmm. um, academics, someone you, 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 this audience might be able to relate to a bit and, um, and also homemakers. And so they were all, they had this, you know, degree of similarity that I mentioned, but they were also strategically different from one another and strategically different in ways, um, that related to, uh, the way we think about the word retirement, um, mm-hmm. some trying to sort of pull on um, and play with the idea that, you know, like, oh, we don't think of homemakers as being able to retire and athletes, you know, they retire so young. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the basic idea was to get us to really question the relationship between work identity and age and, and retirement um, that we have in society. Can you start us off by telling, like, what happens to people, or at least your subjects, when they retired? So they're, you know, they get the watch, they're looking forward to seeing the grandkids and, you know, watching afternoon baseball or whatever. But what what's the reality that confronts your subjects that they find dissatisfying? So, yeah, so each of the participants that I um, interviewed, I asked them to, you know, walk me through their career highs and, you know, their trajectory into um into their life's work and then um, and then their retirement. And it usually, you know, was um, strategically marked by a party, by a retirement mm-hmm. party. 
And from there, it was it was different for each person, right? I mean, some of the academics I interviewed were, you know, at their retirement parties and listening to people talk about themselves in ways that sounded like a funeral and were literally like plotting out the next article that they would write (laughs) during their retirement party. Uh And, um, and, you know, and others were, you know, having um, great experiences afterward, you know, going and having travels and, Mm. and but, but most of them, um, what they talked about was, you know, coming to this point where it was, it was an experience that was a letdown that was, you know, suddenly they didn't have a way to feel distinguished. They didn't have a sense of fulfillment from their day-to-day activities. And, and like each one was really quite different mm-hmm. um, in terms of the ways that they experienced discontentment in retirement. Mm-hmm. And the point is that it's a big contrast to the way that, you know, most media advertisements and billboards that you see, really emphasize retirement as this, you know, wonderful time to go uh, have a walk with your partner on the Mm -hmm. beach and go on cruise ships and spend endless amounts of money. Yeah. (laughs) How much, how much does financial insecurity factor into uh, discontent? Well, I think it depends because, um, you know, for many financial insecurity will put them back into the workplace. Right. And, um, and so then that's a different form of retirement. And that's one of the things that I play around with and reason why I was so interested in, in studying why I've, I've made much of my career um, focused on studying the concept of retirement is that there are so many different ways to, um, to define retirement, to, to think about what does it mean at the individual and the societal level. Um, but in terms of financial insecurity, I mean, yeah, I'll be the first to say that like everybody should plan financially um, and should, you know, be aware of of the fact that the market, the stock market can take a dive, that your um, portfolios can change and that being financially insecure is no fun at any age. Yeah, <laughs> but money's not the only challenge that people face. What are, what are the other challenges that people find difficult when they're having a tough time with retirement. Yeah. So, right. Like if you can put finance and health aside, Mm -hmm. um, because those are both two really important issues that will compromise and influence the way a person experiences retirement. Um, the sort of less commonly discussed aspect is, um, is the more sort of personal and, uh, societal impact of retirement. Um, and that's to say that, um, yeah, for a lot of people, it's, it's an experience of social exclusion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you know. So, like for example, I, I interviewed um, CEOs who you know every day was scheduled by their three administrative assistants, and mm-hmm. and they just got used to like walking in the door and you know, being in charge and being in demand. And um, you know, one of the one of the um, individuals, one of the participants, was describing for me um, the experience of feeling like uh, he, he talked about it like you know, longing for his mistress, which he, you know, apparently had some experience with. And and he was saying, he was like, you know, to go from being the one in charge to suddenly nobody's calling, nobody needs me, nobody's giving me any attention anymore, um, was a, was a real sort of slap in the face. And he, you know, and he said to me, it would just be nice just to know that I was still desirable, just to know that, you know, everyone's well, just to get a call to know that I was still in demand. And, um, and, and I never mind that he couldn't figure out how in the world 
to keep his appointments because suddenly, you know, technology had changed Mm -hmm. and suddenly like he had to figure out how to keep his, um, you know, lunch with his buddies. And that was a challenge for him because he had literally three administrative assistants planning a schedule. Um, So, you know, that's a very extreme opposite end of social, of uh, financial insecurity example. You know, it reminds me though, I remember having, uh, so my father is in his mid seventies and sometimes I'm interested in well-being as a topic. And I remember having a discussion with him because, you know, he's been around for a long time. So I asked him, you know, over the life course, when do you think overall well-being is at its highest? And uh, his answer was kind of interesting. He said, you know, probably around your age, I'm 42 years old. He said, probably in my mid forties. And he goes, you know, at that time you got the kids hanging off you and the job is a hassle and you think that, you know, you're just overburdened. But what you don't realize is that you're, you're overburdened because you're so central to so many different people. And he says, as you age, you get pushed to the periphery and you realize that all those demands on your time were in fact an embarrassment of riches and that. Part of the problem is dealing with marginalization. It's it's much worse to have pe- nobody care about your opinion than to have people clamoring for it. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think I think that there's a lot to that. Um, yeah, I'd I'd love to like hear more of advice from your dad. <laughs> I think oh. that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, I think that's true, <laughs> and and I think so much of. Um, you know, we don't we don't think about age about the marginalization that is associated with aging that much, um, mm-hmm. but it is you know something that if we're lucky enough, all of us will experience, right? Like yeah. if we don't die young, we yeah. all will <laughs> age, and um, and sure to say that um, you know being busy, the busy ethic, that that is what you know keeps us happy is really interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about that. I, I guess in terms of the like when we're most happy in the life course, I can't help but think about Laura Carsonson's work and mm. social selectivity theory and just how like when our time horizons are shrinking that we sort of optimize behaviors and think about more positive things or that those become more important to us yeah. and um and, and so you know along with that there's been a bit of research suggesting that in later adulthood we're happier um you know closer to to your dad's age is yeah. supposed to be the more happy time right you don't have all those demands but I, I definitely think that for a subsector, mm-hmm. for people who did really well on the marshmallow test, right? Mm-hmm. People who are really good at delaying gratification and are overachievers mm-hmm. um, and who've, you know, constantly been trying to move up the career ladder and have have really, you know, given into um, letting their work dominate all other spheres of life, mm-hmm. you know, like Kozer. Um, when they, you know, have given in to the greedy institutions, mm. I think that for those 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 of us who've done that um, or are in those kinds of jobs, mm-hmm. um, retirement can be, yeah, a real time of marginalization. Most of our adulthoods have been characterized by and dominated by work, and when work lets you go, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether yeah. it's because you know you receive the signals that you're no longer um, productive or um, deemed to be important enough mm. and, you know, sort of scooched towards out the door, then um, it can be a really harsh adjustment. So I'm wondering how much of this 
you know, so there's potential confounders, right? Because most of us retire when we're in our late 60s or early 70s, um, typically late 60s. And, um, and so there's obviously a big change in time use and meaning and everything like that. But there's also just the simple fact of aging. And um, so I was really interested to hear that you used athletes, right, who retire much younger. Now, they, they in some ways can age um, faster than some of the rest of us, particularly if they did a contact sport. You know, yeah. if you've ever seen a retired football player walk, it's not pleasant looking. Right. Um, but, you know, th- but for the most part, they're still young when they retire, middle aged when they retire. Right. Most of the, almost all yes. of them retire younger than I am. Yes. Um, right. So h- how does that kind of give you a almost natural experiment to um, unpack? You know, here's people who have a lot of meaning associated with their career. Um, but they retire from their main job, at least, uh, extremely young. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, they, they, by definition, they retire when their bodies are no longer able to perform at their peak um, ability. And so, um, and that, you know, is, is early in the life course. And, and I, I included them intentionally to play around with the idea that retirement is in the time frame that you described, right? That, mm. um, and, and that, that was intentional because I, I want to make the point that if people associate retirement with a specific chronological age, or if we as a society do that, then we're really losing out on a lot of potential um, and uh, potential contributions to society. And, um, and that individuals often will just, you know, get to that point, like 65, you know, Canada was freedom 55, as Joe was um, citing, lots of people remember those ads. Um, Yeah, US more, it's it's more like 65. And, um, and that I think can be problematic in the sense that there is really nothing predictive of your age, I think, in adulthood, um, beyond telling you when's your next when your next birthday is going to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the athletes, you know, were there to introduce that and to also, um, you know, through their stories, they sort of made the point that, um, that it was challenging, that making the transition to doing other kind of work um, was difficult. Like, you know, some of the athletes I interviewed went on and made a lot of money, um, had very demanding, high pressure careers, but they would tell me how nothing they ever did would measure up to the adrenaline rush that they got from competing and, um, and, you know, and being in demand the way that they were for what they considered to be their life's work and the transitions that they made to other kinds of, uh, professions, jobs, uh, what have you, you know, there was a whole range. I mean, athletes are quite interesting in that way because some of them, uh, you know, doesn't being an athlete or an elite athlete doesn't necessarily predict what kind of work you're going to do next. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of them go into coaching, but, but anyway, you know, the point was to say that the transitions that they experienced were sort of telling, like we often in gerontology, will look to older adults and, and, and try to use their experiences to, apply to earlier parts of the life course. And here was this, you know, really young group of people, but describing things that were akin to um, the ways that people later in adulthood described. Interesting. So um, I, I wonder if the, what the findings would be like if you had professional dancers um, who as a rule retired around 24, mm-hmm. which is even younger than athletes, I imagine. And it's, you could imagine it being so young mm-hmm. that, you know, they, they have to have another career mm-hmm. um, after that. And, you know, maybe in their case, they drive meaning from that new career. 
but you know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they're basically the same as other people who put intense physical demands on their body, like athletes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I, um, so one of the, um, participant whose story shared in the book is, uh, was a gymnast and, um, and, you know, and so her, she retired by 21 and, um, you know, and the challenge and sort of contrast to what you've just suggested is that, you know, she had spent her entire childhood focused on her gymnastics mm -hmm. and she, um, you know, she had like pretty much moved away from her parents by early childhood and, you know, never to go back and, and live with them again. And, and so by the time she retired and, you know, she did very well meddling, et cetera. Um, she, but she didn't have a plan B because mm -hmm. it took everything. It took all aspects of her being to be able to focus on her routine, which she practiced six days a week for mm -hmm. at least eight hours a day. If she got the routine right for, you know, something like 15 years or more than that, I mean, around that amount of time, right. Which is the equivalent of, of a career. Um, and, and so, you know, the, while it is true she did have youth, she found the transition to be really challenging in a number of different ways. And and one of those was the idea that, you know, she was no longer important for the reasons that she had been for most of her life. And, you know, so she said she would meet people and 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 they would say, Hey, what are you doing now? And, you know, and just remember, she was like in her, she was 21 when I interviewed her and she said, people said, what are you doing now? And, and, and she would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm still important. You know, I'm still, my name is still, I'm still who I am, but mm -hmm. I, I can't say that I'm a gymnast anymore. And, and because of that, she just felt it really caused her to, um, have to do a double take on, on who she was as a person. Mm -hmm. is is it is it the loss of personal purpose or the loss of a mission or is it the loss of social esteem or is it both that bother those who retire at any age? I I think that you know when you are somebody who gives one hundred and ten percent to your work, um, mm -hmm. so you know for example many physicians are you know acculturated through the institution of medicine to. Um, prioritize their work over over everything else that they do, right? They're woken up in the middle of the night when they're on call and they're immediately expected to jump into this role, which quite mm -hmm. often does involve life or death decisions. I mean, obviously, depending on the type of medicine that you practice, mm -hmm. but um, but it can, right? Like, unlike us, right? Like, we don't make life yeah. or death decisions, right? Thank goodness. Like a sociology emergency? Yeah, yeah. But you know, but nonetheless, you can kind of relate. I mean, the tenure process, yeah. going through the process of tenure, like it really forces you to, um, to focus in on work and to prioritize it. Because if you can't, there's a million other people who will, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> who will do that. So, so I think that, um, I think that for people like that, like I said, people who do well on the um, marshmallow test and, you know, can delay gratification um, and, and prioritize their work that when they, when they come to the end of the tunnel, um, it can be really hard to remember, oh yeah, there's a marshmallow. <laughs> oh yeah, I get to eat that marshmallow. Oh yeah, I forget what it even tastes like. And, and it, and it may not taste that good as you remembered it. Yeah. If if you don't, I'm not saying all academic. I'm not saying everybody is going to be this way. I mean, right. this is you know again like I'm really careful in the book to um, include a big methodological appendix and to 
and to explain that like this sentiment is really not meant to be generalizable. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it it's really interesting. <laughs> we're uh, we're kind of looping in a way back to the chase segment where yeah. you know, the overall theme of this uh, week's string of episodes is uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we shall die. <laughs> yeah. also because, or rather, eat, drink, and be merry because you know you're not going to be able to afford a mortgage anyway. <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> but it's also interesting because you know those parallels. I you have me thinking about. You you know those who have difficulty making the leap from a doctoral program to a long-term academic job and people are like, well, why don't you just get a job in industry? But it's kind of a similar thing, right? If somebody goes to get their doctorate, they spent like probably a decade orienting their identity and their conception of their self as an academic. And for somebody to be so flip and be like, well, just go work for a marketing company or an HR outfit, it's probably not as easy as, as uh, you know, as that advice would presume. Yeah, I've always wondered, like, I, I, I've always had a similar thought of like, you know, there's kind of a puzzle of why the labor supply is so big for adjuncts. Yeah. And in one sense, the reason it's so big is because is obvious. It's because we produce too many PhDs relative to the mm-hmm. size of the assistant professor lines. But, you know, the other, but that doesn't completely solve the question, because then it implies like why don't people quit yeah totally you know and i think like you're saying it's basically because you spend you know uh four to ten years in graduate school basically having your habitus shaped to the extent that you can't imagine doing anything else yep Mm -hmm. and i think it's a disability i went through graduate school the entire time thinking i could possibly end up a business consultant and i was fine with it and it totally was great because i think it preserved my mental health in some way but that's that's getting off topic. What about Michelle? Those who do retire well, what do they do? I think they do what you just described. You know, I think like I think you're going to be just fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I mean, and I I mean, I think you know, being open to having a plan B <laughs> is like a great, you know, throughout your life um, is a great way I think to. Um, ameliorate the transition if you end up in a, the line of work that is in a greedy institution that demands everything of you. If you can always kind of keep in, in the back of your mind, like, you know, I, I, I can do other things. I do have other aspects of myself. And, you know, I think that the, the trick is just like you were, you were both just saying that people kind of get stuck. They get stuck in the, you know, idea that there is only one way to contribute to society, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that is, that is, you know, in whatever subfield that they're in, um, or or they get stuck in terms of being unable to uh, be marketable right. in different types of jobs, right? And I mean, th- those are those are big issues. But you know, I mean, nowadays, like we we can work anytime, anywhere. Most most people, I mm-hmm. mean, not not everybody, but but um, but that can kind of uh, bring on the omnipresence of work, and um, and if you kind of buy into that. Um, it can make separating other aspects of your life really difficult. And so the extent to which it's possible to have other interests, other aspects of yourself, I think those people, you know, the people that I interviewed who were able to be more well-rounded or, um, you know, to get enjoyment from aspects of their life that were not only the one that they were also being paid for. Right. Um, that that behooved them. I mean, you know, because we all have this fantasy that like I'm doing the thing that makes me most happy that I would do this for free, that, you know, I love what I'm doing. And, and, you know, that 
I think that can be fine. I think, you know, so long as you work till you die. And, Mm -hmm. and part of my point is to say that why shouldn't, you know, for lots of types of work, you should be able to work till you die. Like there's so much um, intergenerational tensions. And I've written a couple of papers, not, not in the book, but other, other work that speaks to that idea that there's this idea that older workers and younger workers are, that we're substitutes for each other. And, and, um, and I think that that, that's really complicated. That really complicates things. You know, I, I hear from colleagues who will say, you know, what, what about the, what about the colleague who like really should retire that we can't wait for them to retire. And, um, and, you know, and I just, I just think about the other end of the spectrum that, you know, there's also, um, individuals that we take huge risks on when they're early in their career and, and who make all sorts of mistakes. And yet we don't, you know, we, we don't necessarily, you know, we let them prove themselves. And, um, and so as a society, and that's, you know, part of the argument here is to say that as a society, we really ought to give pause to this idea that a chronological age should dictate when people stop making contributions. Mm-hmm. They used to have, do they still have mandatory retirement in the Canadian Academy or did they get rid of that? No, it's pretty well gotten rid of. Um, yeah, there, there's few exceptions, you know, airline uh, pilots, um, you know, the, 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 the numbers of uh, occupations where there's still mandatory retirement is, uh, is quite, uh, it's, it's not so common now. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've interviewed people who, who did, who, you know, experienced mandatory retirement, um, in, in in academic institutions and otherwise. And, you know, on the one hand, what was, what's interesting, you know, on the one hand, like, it's not helpful at all to be pushed or forced into anything, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, then there was the planning aspect of it where they, they could, they, they could give themselves time to, think about what was going to happen next because mm. they had no choice about it. Right. No choice except for to do that because that was the rule. It was mandatory. And I, I think that's sort of interesting because the way it is now, there is there are these financial incentives, but there, but it's not a rule. But then we're finding a lot of people opting into it and and then we're sort of losing out on potential contributions. Mm-hmm. And and anyway, and for the sake of pension systems, it gets really complicated the way we oh, have yeah. it right now. <laughs> the, there's a, a, a an intro. I don't want to. This will be the second and, and last time I quote my father on this. It's just we've talked about this so often, and he could have very well been one of your subjects as a as a doctor. But I remember him also telling me something uh, along the lines of. I, I was asking why he didn't retire, and he goes, "So he says, listen, son, I'm going to wake up." I'm going to have a meal. I'm going to read the New York Times. I'm going to walk around the block. And now it's 845 in the morning. What am I going to do between now and when I go to bed? How much of it is just the difficulty of filling a day? How many people do you see just have trouble finding something to do, anything to do? Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people said to me, when every day becomes a weekend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when it becomes interchangeable and uh, between a weekday and a weekend, uh, it it can be uh, <laughs> a quite discontenting experience, discontentful experience, you know, <laughs> yeah. however you want to say the word. It's not, uh, it's, it's really tricky, right? And, you know, on the other hand, like there are lots of people for whom, 
every day is an autonomous experience and planning mm. out what they're going to do. You know, I can think of people in the creative professions and in academia, like where, you know, it's like, I know, I know how to plan a day and, mm. um, right. And like academics, we plan out whole semesters, right? Like we're quite good at thinking through, uh, scheduling. And so I would say that, you know, it's, it's not, it's not just about that. It's also about, um, being important and connecting with other people. Um, it's not just about, you know, I don't know how to schedule my day. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure like if your if your dad was hard pressed, he would, he would be able to find lots of interesting things, right. Lots of, um, retirement seminars will, will propose, you know, continuing education. And, and like I myself have like a whole list, you know, if, when I get asked to give talks, I have a whole list of strategies and ways, um, that one can fill their day. But I just think it's really important to also acknowledge that um, that when society associates age with productivity or creativity or or contribution, mm-hmm. period, it it's it's really tricky when you reach that age and people just assume that you're no longer um, useful going to be able to contribute. Yeah, useful. Yeah. I have only one more question. Over the the process of watching people, you know, uh, cope with, you know, the end of their work life, have you developed any opinions about, you know, how much of life is, you know, you talk about the marshmallow test a lot and how when they ultimately get the marshmallow, it's not as tasty. And sometimes the, the goals we set are just motivators or they give us a rationale to put our pants on in the morning and pursue something. It's the pursuit that matters. Do you, do you see evidence of that? Like, is it that, you know, once you, one of the challenges you reach at the end of life is you don't have sort of these long-term goals to work towards and that causes problems. I've always wondered that. I think it's always helpful to have goals at, at either point, you know, at any point early in the life course. And I think it's, it's just as important later in the life course. I mean, it's funny because I don't even mention the marshmallow test in my book. I think I might be hungry or something. Because like, I keep, I keep thinking of like analogies, which I didn't make there, but you know, I, I, I started to think about retirement kind of like the banana, um, just, today (laughs) and and i think i I read something recently about how you know bananas um they they're about to go extinct right that we're not the the bananas that we know of um what is it the cavendish banana is the one that like dominates now and And, then the the older the older uh, banana already went extinct in the 1960s no way and yeah, yeah. So the yeah the gross Michelle banana that was popular in the early twentieth century went extinct around nineteen sixty, and it took them a few years to develop the Cavendish, yeah. and it's going to go extinct soon. Oh no! Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. I mean, I think like it's it's like retirement, where it seems like this really boring topic that like what like it's so common and ordinary, and you hear about it all the time. Um, but then when I when I learned all this about the bananas, which is just I realized there's there's quite a bit of overlap. Like the, both of them were kind of rare before the late 19th century, um, and they're both kind of like when they came into being, they were initially these kind of exotic I, uh, objects slash concepts, and um, you know reserved for like this small segment of the population that could afford them or yeah. that were you know given access to them, and now they're like everywhere um, and you know, they both like, you know, bananas that come in this nice packaging, um, mm-hmm. right? They're like a really health oriented 
type of thing. And, and retirement is too, like there's these nice retirement packages people have. Um, and, and it's, it's, um, and then the thing is that when I heard about the idea that the, um, banana is about to become, uh, there's this fungus, right. That's about to, to make the, them no longer, um, what they are, which is like the fourth most important crop that we have. Hmm. Um, it, it made me think about how, you know, our understanding of retirement is something that it really is changing and, um, and likely it needs to change. Um, we're living longer than we ever have in all of human history. And because of that, uh, we have this sort of term that's become a bit anachronistic that's become associated with age. And yet the age that people retire, uh, you know, is not keeping up with life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And so, I think, you know, the, I, I plot out in, in, the, in my book, you know, the gap that has emerged between average retirement age um, in, in many parts of the world and how and our life expectancy, which has just gone up and up and up. And, and with that comes, I think, a real need to, to rethink what retirement is and what we want it to be from a societal perspective. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto. Her book is Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working Even If We Can with Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Laseth Moreno. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.